1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
1: Okay, so... I think we'll start with the sort of basic question to set the stage, Mm. as it were. Um, There's a short preface um, to this book, novel, play. You can go into that in a moment. Um, Describing it as a dialogue that's constructed from conversations between friends, recorded over a few months, a film adaptation of the stage production also exists. This book version is its own thing, a literary object independent of the play, as well as a guide to staging it. So it seems to me that there's a number of levels of conception, process, um, editing, making, and that also this is in some ways an intermediate or shared object mm. across mm. platforms, genres, etc. So maybe you could say something about what it, what it is.
2: Yeah. yeah. Go for it, Stephen. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Rick.
3: Uh, I could say that from the very first, uh, when we started working on this, we started working on it as a theatre production. And we conceptualized it as a play, a film, and a book. So we always knew that it would have those three components. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it also, I think also in the, in the, you know, so originally it is the commission of a theater piece. Yes. Which was, um, you know, sort of uh, from a theater asking for maybe an art angle on theatre, but we were very clear at the beginning that we wanted to engage with theatre proper, whatever that means, yes. um, rather than sort of put contemporary art on the stage in some way. And, and, and immediately, both of us writing this thing with the kind of freedom that, that the invitation sort of afforded, really, which was that a lot of what we were writing would never be on stage, would not be sort of mm. manifest, but would be part of this thing that then we could explore and expand into the book and then also things that would only be apparent when we filmed it and so on and so forth so yeah like Steve says it was a kind of simultaneous thing but it was from an invitation that was very open it was very like would you like to do a piece of theater for six weeks you know in a few years and then the pandemic Mm -hmm. happened and so we had a lot longer to work on it and to really establish our collaboration and to sort of work on what this thing would be as a vessel for the things that we were interested in,
0: I
3: suppose. Yeah, and as Ed says also, our first decision was that it wouldn't be an installation on stage yeah, or anything like that. We wanted to take the medium and the history of theater very seriously. And then we also decided that the film has to also be a film. Yes. And the book has to be uh, literature. Yes. Right. And so it was also this exercise of doing the same project in different mediums, but uh, treating each medium, uh, giving each medium its full dignity, and trying our best to kind of like work within those parameters, while of course giving ourselves a lot of leeway as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. and each
2: of those each of those forms kind of lose and gain exactly at the same time, right? Yes. So there's loads of things that are in the book that, of course, appendices and also a lot of stage directions that are that neither happen nor are actable or anything. You know, there's a lot of stuff in there that is. Uh, but is part of the kind of um, this exported sensation throughout the whole thing. So it's exported to the media, the, each medium that is sort of used to hold this thing, but also to, uh, yeah, I don't know, to sort of uh, w- one part will lose something and another thing will, will, will gain in that process. Yeah, or they both lose. Oh, they both lose, yeah. yeah. And there's a huge gap.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and neither of you had worked in theatre proper before never in terms of writing for the stage no. Or? No. so do you think that there's like some aspect of like circumventing do you see what i mean it seems like you're talking about we hear the word like hybrid a lot to discuss yeah, forms sure. now mm. but what you've described is actually like an entity moving through different things in a separate iteration in each form rather than being fused together and it strikes me that some of what the some of what's in the book and some of which is in the um film which I've seen but many people probably haven't is like a kind of evasion of theatrical conventions yes and so I'm wondering if coming at it from these other angles do you know what I mean is a way of like unpicking or undoing those expectations
3: I think maybe a good way to begin to answer that is because I'm sure many people here obviously haven't seen the play which ran in Copenhagen uh and you haven't probably seen the film and you book. probably haven't read the book, which yeah, is yeah. coming out like, today. <laughs> uh, so maybe the best thing <coughs> is to just kind of describe what this thing is. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, nice. <laughs> just read the blurb.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the uh, the play is, you know, again, we were trying to take uh, theater seriously, not in an ironic way, but but to just... If we're gonna do theater, to just do it. So it is a a chamber play. It takes place in one room. There are three characters who uh, sit in one corner of that room uh, and have a conversation for the first half of the play. They're three friends. They're just talking very warmly with each other. Uh, They're not talking about anything in particular. Uh, The conversation drifts from topic to topic. uh, And all of the dialogue is derived from conversations between. Uh, our small group of friends uh, uh, that we recorded over many months and then we kind of, kind of you know, worked through those transcriptions and edited it mm. into a dialogue. Anyway, for the first 45 minutes or so of the play, you've just got three people hanging out in this one room apartment chatting. Uh, halfway through, two of the friends go home for the evening and then there's one person left in the apartment. Uh, And then they walk around the apartment and interact with some objects, some of which (laughs) are magical. Uh, And, I mean, so so you really have to think that the first half of it is like kind of a chamber play but with no conflict where people are just warmly Mm. conversing. And the second half of the play is a piece for solo dance,
0: Mm. more or
3: less. Um, And the second half is silent. Mm. Um, Although nothing is ever silent because... There's like 40 mics hidden on the stage and in the floor. So everything is like squeaking and hissing the entire time. Mm. Uh, I hope that gives kind of a sense yeah, yeah, of yeah. what it is like. Yeah, Maybe I'm missing something.
2: No, no, no. no. That, that's, that's good. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, that didn't answer your question. Sorry.
1: That's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can get back to maybe maybe in a way when we talk about plot or narrative or. The, sure. absence, the absence of these conventional things and the idea of the characters as well, yeah. Yeah. who whom we're not really invited to know particularly, right? Yeah. Or no. how we get to know through them is through a kind of idiosyncratic dialogue, which I think would be familiar to many people reading it in Sure. Way. Yeah, yeah. You know, it Although opens... conspicuously
2: not as well. Many you know, yeah. people who've, who've come up after, uh, when they saw the play, were like, I, is this how... You speak to your friends, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Are you okay? And and yeah, or like, uh, oh, I don't have any friends like that, you know. Huh. Yeah, yeah. And there's a kind of there's a there's a um, you know, friendship is a is a big part of it, but quite a sort of late stage friendship mm-hmm. where there is no news. There's no, you know, it's quite sort of um, uh, silly, really, and mm-hmm. childish, yeah. but also very. Everyone knows each other to the to the nth degree to a point where there's everyone's very, you know, like avoid. Things and but also certain testy moments that are very familiar or something. So the familiarity Mm. is sort of uh, is is a big part of the relationship here. But also this, yeah, exactly what Steve said. The the the, that there isn't really crisis within the relationships of the Mm. thing, you know, which is sort of unavoidable. You know, in the point where where actors take it on, of course it's unavoidable because they are people doing (laughs) things. So there is this psychological inevitability to it, Mm -hmm. but at least on the page, there is this kind of, we're not doing that, you know. Mm -hmm. And then there is, in the stage directions, and then on the stage, there is this kind of, exactly where does the, the, in the presumption that the crisis, (laughs) that has to go somewhere. Then it goes into, say, like Steve says, the sort of, uh, the contact mics under the stage floor or the plumbed-in radiators around the edge, Mm -hmm. all the things that are listed in the appendix of the book, which are these kind of very specific, um, peculiar insistences on... Slavish fidelity to something, you know. Mm. Um, so there's that, definitely that, and so it, it sort of frees up the dialogue to be both real and sort of unimaginably
0: flat or something, you know. Mm. Uh, to just clarify something, uh,
3: yeah. uh, something I'd said: uh, <laughs> the the outline of the apartment on stage is not defined by walls; it's defined by plumbing. And a couple of radiators, yeah. uh, and that's how you know the limits of the apartment. And uh, we insisted that the plumbing had to be plumbed into the theater and working, and that the radiators had to be on and hot, which was a kind of piece of unnecessary realism, because the audience, of course, would, wouldn't know that. Yeah. Right? Nobody, how would you know unless you went up and touched the stage? Which the people actors did. What, yeah, yeah, a couple people did. Yeah. But the actors <laughs> know it, and there's like a little bit of extra heat in the room, and then also, of course, the microphones mm. are picking up air and water moving through yeah uh, plumbing uh so it was also part of our kind of interest in kind of an excessive kind of realism or an excessive naturalism where you're, you're working very hard to make something realistic that is actually almost imperceptible and it doesn't really matter
2: but it's interesting how it, uh, you know like when it's when it's the book it's like it's it's incredibly perceptible and in as much as like it's, mm. it's yeah it's yeah, yeah. pointed at as a kind of uh if you're staging this you must do this you know, it's an yeah. insistence, really, whereas in, in effect, it's a kind of missable, oh, I, I didn't realize, you, why did you do that? <laughs> you know, that must have cost a lot of money or, mm. you know. which what's the it, point. Yeah, which it, it's an interesting, yeah. that's interesting in terms of the kind of, the shift between media of um, what's apparent and what's not, what's, what's visible, or like, you know, chunks in this where entire stage directions are in the negative, so that what's not happening and mm-hmm. the list is quite, or like, you know, at the beginning it says that Peter's socks are the last socks on earth, which is a kind of, um, it's just thrown out there, but it's sort, of, it's sort of playing to that point of kind of, of course, this is not mm-hmm. available within the performed drama, but is available within the literature. Yeah. And then, and, and then the, the film thing has its own, I mean, we're both big fans of kind of um, the awkward genre of filmed theatre. Yeah. No one likes it. You know, it's kind of yeah. it's sort of bad. It's you know. missing something. It's missing both sides, mm-hmm. cinema and theater. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Which, which is a, thing. and when we made the film we wanted to lean directly
3: into. Oh, absolutely. That. And directly if you remember how film theater, you know, if you if you know, you remember how film theater was shown like the eighties and nineties when I was a kid on, on like public television or something. And you get this camera that is like somewhere in the audience. And <laughs> you, there's, you can't really measure the distance with your eyes, but you can tell that there's a gap between the camera and the stage. And that gap kind of is it's part of how it loses its liveness mm-hmm. or something yeah. like that. There's something missing there. And mm-hmm. we, I think we, when we made the film, we really uh, wanted to, to use that a lot, which maybe just circles back to what we've been talking about of kind of using the very, not just using the mediums, but using the various kinds of loss within each medium. Or something like that.
1: I mean, it strikes me that some of what you're what you're describing as well fits much more in like cinematic tropes than it does in theater. Uh Like, for instance, the actors often in in your play are they have very minute facial expressions or they do small things. It's not. I mean, there are some big gestures which we'll talk about later. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's more for camera close up. And for stage acting, which is often much bigger, you yeah. know, so you get like when you get film actors on stage, it's really hard for them to figure out how to express. Yeah, yeah. Um, or this idea of somehow creating a space that's actually like hold, holding heat, <laughs> like, yes. a, like a room would, yeah. or having the space filled with sound that also becomes a material or a character or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems yeah. to me that there's something that you're doing on the stage with time and space that's much more attributable to film. I don't know. Do you think that's or that you're pulling on. I
2: mean hopefully there is there's a kind of uh, seesawing thing mm. of loss and gain and and that the loss in one medium is felt as a gain in another but a lot of that is sort of is just felt rather mm. than a kind of perceptible like if you're watching the film you're not aware of the heat of course
0: mm.
2: although arguably you're not aware of the heat in the audience in the theater anyway <laughs> but 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 you're still I mean that's it's evident in the literature but I think also There's a commitment in there in the concept of a kind of um, where do we place realism in this thing? Mm -hmm. There's a sort of constant thread. And, you know, in the beginning, part of this kind of exporting of crisis and also just recording conversations between friends and and then transcribing and, of course, editing it, but really not adding, except Mm -hmm. tiny segue moments, you know, um, was a kind of, you know, there's a peculiarity on insistent, realism at certain points in any kind of art form I think and it feels queasy sometimes that mm. and mm. quite exciting to sort of no no here's an opportunity for mm. a kind of for a for a um a, a level of realism that is not even perceptible but is there and is felt so the actors of course are, are a bit too hot on stage which of course they always <laughs> are but you know but they're also they they've got their little Madonna mics on and they're doing it the, you know i don't know it's interesting how technology can sort of both sort of disappear, but also uh, uh, make excessive kind of moments of reality.
0: Mm.
3: And I think those... So they're wearing microphones so that they don't have to project, which I think ties into your Mm. question, right, Mm. which is... I mean, they're all stage actors, so they wanted to project, uh, and then they couldn't, uh, and we asked them, of course, not to. Uh, And so they're talking it's true that they're kind of acting and talking in a way that's more familiar from film or television. Mm. Uh, but it, it, I think that the the technology that allowed them to do that is just simply the fact that they're wearing this microphone. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, and then their voices are, you know, we, we raise the level of their voices pretty high. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it's like at the limit of where it would be feeding back, right? Yeah. So they really had to speak softly and they had to, keep everything understated, Mm. uh, uh, they're constrained by the mics in that way. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I wanted to ask about the role of, (laughs) um, like gesture and habits, which, um, the characters speak about quite a lot. So it opens with them talking about how they put their jumpers on. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and this is what I meant when I, when, you know, that you can, can like imagine yourself I was reading it, thinking wait a minute how do I put my <laughs> jumper on you know it's like one arm two arms over top whatever so it, it opens with this idea of like the um, embodied self in a way um, and things that like one notices or doesn't notice and then this recurs throughout um, in the stage directions in terms of talking about how the characters might be running their hand over Mm -hmm. the sofa Mm -hmm. in a kind of tender way, as if it's a geography. And -hmm. this comes back again later when it's describing what another character is doing. So there seems something interesting to me about this um, use of gesture to make characters, but also I was wondering what you were thinking in terms of creating this terrain of Mm behaviour.
2: I mean, I I think think to introduce would be like a notion of dance Mm. in relation to... Also, like, that felt... Uh, this is maybe just me, I don't know, but I don't think so. But the, a space for uh, artifice that was less problematic than acting in mm-hmm. some way, that, that something about the attention being drawn to a gesture, I don't know, you know, it's familiar from maybe a Pina Bausch, but less hysterical in that kind of... Um, which is something you can do with the camera, of course, but we were trying, at least in the second half particularly, to really, like point to things that, like when he's picking up all the bottles by sticking his fingers in each of the things, which is a very, everyone does that, but there's a kind of uh, audience-performer-internalised thing there, you know. Uh, Yeah, that's not answering your question either, but what what are gestures doing in that, Stephen?
1: (laughs) Um, or there's like you know she puts her hair. Yeah, that's, you know, really there's that's lots an of improv. That's good. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Or doing kind of strange hand motions to end. Yeah, that's really good. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> really good. Do I need yeah. more?
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> no, like, whatever you just mentioned part of the
1: play, I'll be like, yeah, that's a good part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was but awesome. I
3: think I think, <laughs> yeah. I think there's something
2: that that affords that uh, the the I'm just trying this out, but like that affords the ele- that sort mm. of the elevated gestural space because of the. You know, banality of what they're talking about, or the kind of the lack of crisis and drive and sort of uh, plot to things that there is this kind of loosed attention that's mm. that's able to to both in the actor but also in the script and things to attend to minutia, mm. you know, mm-hmm. to
3: And also, I think I mean I uh, I'm very interested. Uh, I, I I think I is as well. Like in careful, yeah
2: okay.
3: uh, in in habit. And repetition, but also in specifically in kind of the self sensuality of habit in the pleasure of habit. Right. Mm -hmm. And in the pleasure, like all these, uh, you know, in the opening conversation, people were talking about how they take, put their clothes on and off, uh, not in a specifically erotic way, but just literally how you put a jumper on how you take a jumper off but at the same time there's a kind of bodily pleasure and a kind of repetition in that you 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 make those moves because you personally like to make that particular gesture to put your jumper on mm-hmm. and and then the like for me uh, to maybe put it a little bit too strongly but I think but I think it's true is like it's also thinking about like what kind of sens- self sensuality or what kind of masturbation exists like in putting on a jumper mm-hmm. right and kind of diffusing the erotic and diffusing the self sensual erotic mm-hmm. into Kind of habit mm-hmm. and just minute gesture uh, mm-hmm. that are just part of our daily yeah. life, but are still also a person <coughs> touching themselves
1: mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's also interesting moments of kind of like estrangement from the self. So there's yeah, yeah. this passage about one of the characters' father once cracked eggs into a pan and they were black because mm. um, they were rancid. And then there's this question that one of the characters says is, You know, how do we know what the smell of rotten eggs is? And they're all trying to think how they know what it is or what it smells like. And there's another one where, you know, they play a game, which is like, pretend you've never had a headache before. Mm -hmm. Describe it to me. Mm. So there's this funny um, sort of scripted movement. But at the same time, one of the things that's happening in that group is a kind of unsettled understanding of physical experience or of corporeality, I suppose.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, it's fascinating just the way you described that is thinking about the scripting in just having conversations with friends. Because, mm. of course, those are subjects, those are things that we talked about just because, just because we're hanging out, you know, mm-hmm. day after day. It, essentially a kind of bubble during the, uh, mm. one of the lockdowns in Copenhagen. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is peculiar. I mean, you know, the, the feeling of those questions or the kind of prompts that would be that are so ex, explicitly scripted, mm-hmm. which are also trans, they translate into sort of games, really the gamification of conversation, which kind yeah. of maybe emerges out of the bottom of a certain kind of boredom as well. A
3: very low stakes game.
2: Very low stakes <laughs> game. Yeah, but it's interesting that, that that scripting is of course unavoidable in that situation. Of course, becomes sort of, sort of sings when one actually transcribes it and turns it into script. Mm-hmm. But uh, what was what was the question again? Sorry. You
1: fine. know what? I'd, I don't. No, no. It's, <laughs> no, no, no sorry. <laughs> Something about estrangement. No, it's a really um, nice... Um, uh, unsettling yeah.
3: of... But but I think it's also, you know, I mean, we talk a lot <clears throat> about, about, this play is about friendship. It's three friends are talking throughout most of it and, and just being friends together and you're just watching them be together. But as Ed said, it's a, 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 like a late stage friendship and I think uh, one of the interesting things is that we were both thinking about and talking about as we were making this is... What happens in friendships where you see somebody... You see people so much and you know each other so well that you don't kind of engage in the familiar social performances that you're used to and you just kind of... I mean, there's something kind of paradoxical where very intimate friendships become a little bit automatic, Mm -hmm. almost. You're not really trying to impress each other. You don't have news for each other all the time. You're not necessarily like... You, of course, there are people you could have heart to hearts with, but you're not having heart to hearts with them every day. A lot of conversation is just blank in a mm. way. It's it's literally keeping the friendship alive by just continuing to talk, right? And that is a kind of game, and it becomes this kind of you're you're a couple of automatons talking and playing <laughs> games with each other, and that is like in some ways like one of the highest forms of intimacy, mm. right? And so it's it, it simultaneously. Y- yeah, it's simultaneously a closeness. But there is an estrangement in that too where you, you move away from uh, the kind of signals of intimacy that we're used to, yeah. which is that you, you open your heart to each other all the time. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. of course, with your very close friends, you actually don't. You're, like, you know, mm. you're just texting bullshit to each other or you're, you, you know, you're, you're just chatting about literally nothing.
2: Blue you know? tits. What? Blue tits. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: There is a weird point that seemed quite serious to me, though, where mm. one of the characters is speaking about having surgery. Yeah. Yeah. And did you know that's what I was going to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's the only <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And said, you know, I was, like, really upset about going under general anesthetic because I thought I was going to die. Yeah. And yeah. then says, you know, it's actually, like, one in 30,000 people who dies. And then Peter, the male character, is like, and I bet it would be you. Yeah. And the, And yeah, says yeah, it yeah. twice. And I couldn't Actually, figure out <laughs> what it was like this strange moment, and she just sort of looks at him, and then the conversation carries on in a different direction. But that's
2: right? also true, yeah. someone tried yeah. that joke, right?
1: Oh, right, and I right. like
2: someone's like, work. there's this, I guess, shift yeah. in the tone. Someone is reporting on something genuinely difficult that happened in their life, and then someone is misreading the entire like anyone <laughs> might, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, like, it's real, Who I suppose. It? it was one of you guys. It probably was <laughs> me, <kidding>. <laughs> it, was, it was definitely Ed, yeah. Do you think so? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry.
2: No, no, it's fine.
1: <laughs> what, what happens in this room <laughs> stays in this
3: room. Uh, no, I no mean. It's, yeah, it's on a podcast, I think.
2: But it's also <laughs> weird, you know, like, oh, all the people, because it's not <laughs> just three people that we recorded, either. Mm. No, it's no, more. no, it's,
3: it's much more, yeah. Right.
2: So they all came to see it, and they all know that they said those things.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: but it's just a joke It's a that document doesn't land. as well, though. You know, like yeah, yeah, it, it yeah, is important. Yeah. It was important. It became important, or it yeah. became less important. That it was a sort of documentary of a, of some mm. peculiar stripe. You know, mm-hmm.
3: but then to you know to <coughs> kind of follow up on the thought just before this one, I think it still has something to do with this intense level of blank friendship, where somebody can open up and talk about their surgery. And somebody can make a joke that doesn't land mm. that in other contexts might be kind of hurtful, but in there is a certain kind of trust and familiarity that's already been established, so that neither of those things really reach pit, like high pitches yeah, in yeah, a certain yeah. way. Yeah. They are both like accepted, and they're both just part of the circulation of that f- friendship. Yeah.
2: Right. Everyone's, right. Everyone's everyone in that group is 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 very aware of of how to. Uh, ameliorate and soften certain bits at you know peaks that might be coming or not mm-hmm. and sort of you know perform the dance together. Mm-hmm.
3: Which which is also maybe why the actors are taught to uh, were told to act so low. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah yeah. So like mm-hmm. quietly and, and naturalistically to bring out and like stiffly mm-hmm. also, right? Mm-hmm. To bring out that bit of roboticness.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean on the other end of things mm-hmm. there's a second part of the play. Yes. Um, and I wonder if now is a good moment for you guys to read um, mm. from that section where the play becomes silent, but there's an um, effulgence of, of yeah. description and drama.
3: Yeah, what should we read? The head? The head.
2: So should I just... Send yeah, it? please do. Please do. This
1: is another serious moment. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, yeah. There's
3: some technological gadgets involved in the
2: play. I could read that appendix. The mirror, the, the mirror, screen mirror yeah, thing? Yeah, explain what it is. I mean, it tells you. Yeah. All right? Yeah, do it. Uh, a screen mirror thing is at the center of the back of the stage. It's about two meters square. In front of the screen mirror is a low table counter thing, the same length as the mirror and at the height of a desk quite deep. Why? Well, it's deep enough to allow for a rectangular hole to be cut out of it to fit a projector that is suspended in a wooden box beneath the table counter thing. Because the projector is so close to the screen mirror, the projector has an ultra short throw periscopic lens on it. Beneath the screen mirror is a camera on a tripod with a lens with a very low aperture and a strong zoom so that when something comes close to it is very clear. it's very clear. And when things are more distant, they're abstract and blobby. This camera is angled up at the face of whoever, Peter, sits at the table counter thing. The camera feeds the projector this image. The projector projects this image onto the screen mirror. For most of the play, the audience cannot see anything in particular on the screen mirror. It's kind of like a splotchy grey light. When the actors pass by on their way, they suddenly and briefly show up on the screen mirror. When Peter sits down to unpack his face, two lights by the camera shine up to light up his face. At the same exact time, the stage lights dim, except for the lights on the Peter area, and Peter's there. All the focus is on the screen mirror, except that the TV is still on all the time. So there are actually two screens on stage to look at. That didn't need reading out, I don't think. But, but there's, a, there's a big thing. <laughs> so Sorry.
3: there's a big screen at the back of the stage. Yeah. And when he puts his face close to it, his face shows up on the screen. Thanks. You're welcome. It's described yeah, uh,
1: as like a shaving, a shaving mirror, you yeah,
2: know, yeah, which yeah, has yeah. like the little close-up. Yeah, the, 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 the magnifying thing.
3: thing. Yeah, yeah. And then, Sorry. No, no,
0: it's
3: good. Oh, and, then, <laughs> and then at the very end, he does a mime routine in the... He pulls apart his face. Yeah, he pulls apart his face. Mime's pulling apart his face. And we'll read the instructions that we gave to Peter to do that. Would start? No,
1: you can start. Okay. And also has, does, does sound part? effects with his mouth. Yes. Ah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Very That's much.
1: Yeah.
2: Auto Foley. Yeah.
1: Uh,
2: Peter sits before the mirror and looks. The lights in the room dim and the lights in the table brighten. Projection of Peter's face is vivid. He looks at himself without examining himself not like he's checking out a mole or scrutinising a new wrinkle, just looking at his face. He moves his head a bit. Maybe he fishes the last bit of spaghetti out of his teeth with his tongue. This is all a pause. After the pause, with one hand, Peter reaches up and matter-of-factly pretends to unscrew and remove an eye, making convincing squishy noises with his mouth. The eye pops out and he makes a little popping sound with his mouth and he pretends to look at the removed eye with his other eye.
3: Peter takes the unscrewed eye and pretends to put it on the table top all the way to the left. Then he continues to mime unpacking his face, removing his features one by one and placing them on the table. He doesn't necessarily do all of the following actions and not necessarily in this order, maybe half. He proceeds with a straightforwardness, like he has done this before, pretending to remove the features of his face. He places each feature on the table in a line that extends from left to right. He pauses between each action as if to let his face reset. The whole routine takes about 10 minutes. So there's about, I don't know, 25 or so actions in here, but he did I don't know 12, 15, yeah. something like that. Not all of these. I'll just read some of the actions. Pop eye out. With one hand, stretch lids, with the other take the eye out, like taking out a contact lens but the whole eye. Slight shiver. The body doesn't necessarily want to do it. Like when you're trying to make yourself sick, there's some resistance in the body. Hold it preciously, like if you were taking apart a watch or a clock. Don't lose the little bits. It comes away with a little gunk. Catch that gunk as well. Maybe a string follows the eye. Be careful with it. Look at it. Check that it's all there. Teeth. Just a few at a time, using fingers like pliers. And then maybe take out the whole bottom layer at once, like dentures. Teeth are quite hard, so you need to use both hands. Some are more stubborn than others. Strain against them and then they give. Come out in a rush. Tonguing of the gum where the tooth was. It's bloody. Peeling off lips. Like getting your fingernail under tape. Hard to catch the edge. Slow. Be careful not to snap it. Break it. Both lips in one motion. Nose. Quick snap and then pull off with a catching motion. Hold it delicately in two hands as it's placed on the table.
2: Uh, Ears, peel them down. They come right off. Cheek, puff it up. Get the skin at the base of the jaw as if there's a zip. Finding it is a bit hard. Once you've got the zip, hold the cheek so it doesn't drop on the floor, but unzip with relief. Relaxing of the face, only one cheek. Find central zipper in hair. Rooting around in hair on the back of the head, find it unzip it to chin or bottom of neck pull apart from the forehead when it's unzipped it's baggy then it's kind of on your shoulders brush it back like a hood this one doesn't go on the table you just wear it like a hood eyes again hand in front ready to catch the eye thwack at the back of the head the eye falls into the hand one and then the other jaw move it back and forth to loosen it a bit side to side, then pull it out of its socket, not too much resistance, like pulling the limb of a plastic figurine and it pops out of the ball joint. Tongue, some pulling with both hands, with fingers on the sides of the tip and then a gentle yank, comes out pretty easily. Hold it very delicately. Tongues are quite long, longer than you would think. You have to drape it down slightly. Fistful of hair, kind of like pulling hair out of a hairbrush, getting a clump and and pulling it at, at once.
3: Just read a few more throat small door on neck little handle that you turn or a catch open the door as if it's a closet it swings open one hand has to hold the door open it's a little heavy while the other hand gets in there remove something from the neck with a few fingers like you're taking a doll's dress on a hanger off a rack in a dollhouse then close the door you don't want to leave that open air around the eyes the area that would be under goggles Basically looks like you were taking off goggles, but there's no band holding them on. (laughs) Not actually goggles. Like air that is somehow suctioned to the face. Bridge of nose. Pulling it out. Don't resist at all. Like it's just sitting there on top of the nose. Balanced there. Air around the cheeks. There's no description for that one. Find something. Little bits between lips and gums. Way up in there. Unscrew it. Or unplug it. Like finding a tiny screw when you don't have the right tool and you try to do it with your fingers. Touch roof of mouth just be- before the gagging point. So there's a little bit of hesitation because you don't want to gag, as if pressing a button like a reset button that's on the back of a machine in a place where it's not easy for it to be accidentally pressed. You have to press quite hard, but it doesn't do anything that we can see. Pull finger out slowly.
1: Great. <laughs> <laughs> I liked how, Ed, you were starting to do... <laughs> well, I... Uh,
2: yeah. the yeah. yeah. jaw. Yeah, make it quicker. Um, but also it's, you know, like the, yeah, the, the this thing comes from things one one mm-hmm. one might do in front of a mirror <laughs> uh, on one's own. <laughs> Just trying out uh, uh, that. Because you don't need to be, I mean, one doesn't need to be convincing alone, you know, to anyone. Mm. But uh, given a mirror or given uh, some sort of way to... Uh, look at oneself mm-hmm. one might end up in, in sort of these these places I, think.
1: I mean the body and the breaking body the malfunctioning body the dysfunctional body the unsettling body that has bugs under the skin some one of the characters has a dream that there's bugs under her skin or worms mm. and wakes up and finds that she has a real tick on her hip Hmm. that she plucks out and the other character keeps asking if she got the face out, which struck me as very funny because <laughs> you want the head. not, that <laughs> not he, the you, know, like you don't yeah, picture yeah. like a tick's face. Right. Um, and there's a lot of like really noisy eating, uh, sucking of grapes right yeah, into the yeah. microphone, um, kind of slobbering of spaghetti, which is described as being put into his body, into Peter's <laughs> body. So there's this funny thing of the body... Yeah. Having holes in it, but also being capacious mm. and coming apart, and an aspect of violence. Someone talks about a friend who has a fantasy of smashing a brick into their um, collarbone. Yeah. So there, you know, there's these unsettling moments of, you know, the body being punctured by mm-hmm. an awareness of itself um, for whatever reason. Maybe you could say something about that and and how the con- the conversation between the friends relates or maybe doesn't to this unpacking of the face Mm
3: -hmm. well i don't know if there's another kind of body (laughs) than Mm. the one that it's like falling apart in various ways Mm. Mm. or being taken apart or being played with or dissembled or and so on and i also think that uh in both ed and worth respectively bodies are always thought very flexibly Mm. in that sense um sometimes there's a bit of violence to it, sometimes there's not, but mm-hmm. there's certainly kind of a conception of the body as as a machine or an object that is 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 malleable and can be reassembled or mm-hmm. taken apart I think yeah, in different ways
2: yeah i don't know i mean I think I mean this is what's peculiar about this in a way is like talking about conversations that other people mm. uh, you, know, you know there are obviously parts of conversations that are scripted and directed and stuff, but you know, the kind of, um, the textures of, um, maybe it's a sort of limit of news to a certain extent is to speak of the body mm. in a kind of imminent way of like, well, my, or like uh, to speak to my mother would be to speak of her coccyx forever or something, mm. you know. be like some sort of bot <laughs> that's a terrible, I hope she never <laughs> hears it, but I mean like a. You know, like, but I mean, I mean, it's like <laughs> right. a, a, a sort of this is news as well as me, my body, yeah. and, and yeah. I. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's there's that the the reporting of the body in that way, but also I think there is, you know, the whole second half is a kind of self pleasuring thing. Mm-hmm. Some of Peter's gestures are from watching my daughter, who's mm-hmm. six, you know, doing things with herself, which are what you would try to do, you would test a body in that way and mm. find something that fit and felt terrific or, or weird or whatever. But it's a constant exploration, even into the kind of the, the sort of quote unquote tedium of just talking about, yeah, I, I, something happened to, to me or mm. a fantasy I had, which is sort of, again, maybe it's a fantasy that is not the sort of top shelf top level (laughs) fantasy but it's kind of quite low (laughs) down in the in the in the list of fantasies that you report upon or that you remember that you have or something Mm -hmm. like the compression fantasy or the the brick on the collarbone thing there's a kind of oh yeah you know rediscovering a relationship maybe through a kind of uh, automatic Mm. uh, touch or something there is a kind of yeah Mm. that those things maybe yeah
1: Before we move on to questions, maybe I'll ask one or two more. Just, I wanted to ask about like the writerly aspects Mm. of Mm. particularly the, there's a italicized voice that Mm. comes in on page 54, (laughs) Um, which is, you know, roughly a third of the way through. Mm. And, you know, to distinguish for people, basically there's the dialogue, there's stage directions, and then all of a sudden there's an italicized voice that starts to say more unusual things mm. um, to describe urges that characters have, which we don't really know anything about previously. Mm-hmm. So it's like she has to do it, like something happened to her eyes and she has to get them out. Yeah. Or later, yeah. there's this passage um, about this idea of stiffening, mm. um, which is describing a movement that Peter's doing, but it's in this different font than the other movements. Um, and then there's this other passage where Peter leaves mm. and the room is silent, but then this italicized voice starts to describe the objects in the room taking taking on life. Yeah. Maybe you could say something about these tonal shifts or the description or, you know, who, what, what is this italicized mm-hmm. voice? How did, I guess I'm curious mm-hmm. also in a writerly way about how, how that was composed, because it's obviously quite different than the dialogue.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: It was all composed orally. Yeah. I mean, we, we uh, there was no division in labor, a division of labor in the writing. Uh, and we kind of wrote it all out loud mm. together. We would talk through sentences and write down the sentences. Yeah. So I think that that's why it, it, it both sounds a little bit like voice and a little bit broken. And it, it's, it's obviously written, it is writing, it's meant to be writing, but it, it comes out of uh, this other place. It's not like composing a sentence on a blank
2: word doc. So I think that that's one part of it. I think it's also, it is also conspicuous writing in as much as it's not, or rather it's sort of, it has its own sake, you know, rather than the other things that have direction and have things. I mean, you know, we had to have two different scripts for the actors. We had this sort of burgeoning, uh, Mm. novelized or sort of expanded thing. And then that was obviously crazy for an actor to encounter because there's loads of things it's telling you not to do.
3: Hmm. And things uh, that don't happen in the play. And things that don't happen. Yeah.
2: And so there's this sort of phantom space. So we, we had another script that was just the practical, you know, like what do they actually need to do this? You know. Uh, they had access to the other one as well, just in case that was of interest, <laughs> I suppose. Um, that, <coughs> maybe that speaks to a sort of uh, negatively practical writerliness mm. or something. You know, that it's not, mm. it's not, it was these sort of glorious spaces where we could talk and really, you know, like voice this kind of f- feeling around what was happening or what what might be being felt by by the actors mm. and what you know. I don't know. It's sort of an extra tracing of a sort of space around the things, but yeah, I think the voice, particularly that kind of italicized interjection or something, is because it's very much born of us talking and immediately writing it down like what does that feel like exploring a sort of bad metaphor or something Mm. you know and also it was you know a very intentional
3: inclusion of inconsistency right yes we wanted the the book to be very inconsistent Mm -hmm. yes and so there are these italicized sections which you know they don't quite sound like the other sections but they don't sound that different either So sometimes it's hard to know why they're italicized, but they do interrupt the book nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that across all three versions of Sorcerer in the play, uh, in the the film, and in the the book, I think we are working with how to use the medium to introduce inconsistency, or if inconsistency is a bad word, then like a simultaneous variety of fidelities Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of it is very, very hi-fi and crystal clear Mm -hmm. uh and at the same time other elements are kind of junky and opaque Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think that that's something that is in all three in different ways in in the book it it takes the form of these interruptions of the dialogue or interruptions of the prose that feel more like notes or they feel a little bit more unfinished
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, UnitedHealthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay, I think we should open out to questions. I have more if there aren't any, but there's a lot of Nice looking folks here. Does any does
0: anyone have a have a question? Um, one of you at the start, I think it was Ed, said something about a gap. You said the word gap, mm. and was I suppose I'm just wondering this idea of like a play without conflict. I've sort of seen some experiments of over the years. It seems incredibly risky thing to do. Uh, it's almost like you're up against the campfire, the evolutionary sort of history of narrative. And I was wondering if there was any gap between what you had sort of planned to do and how you actually, that actually played out. Was there any kind of gap there? I mean,
2: definitely, the, you know, because neither of us had, had written and directed theatre before, the shock and the amazement at the actor's arrival, you know, suddenly there's people who arrive and they've memorised the whole thing and they go straight into it. And they change everything, and, and not everything, right? You know, but th- there's this extraordinary, terrifying moment of kind of people saying all of this stuff again, which is peculiar because we've already heard our friends say all of these things. So there's a hu- there was a gigantic gap, and then there's the other, uh, just sticking with "gap." <laughs> but there's the, also this huge moment when the audience arrives, and they change everything as well, because they, they arrive. Everyone arrives with presumptions of how to resolve things, you know, the discomfort or not of not knowing about something or of feeling like, but what, what's their the motivation or something, you know, and at various points, an actor or other might be sort of a bit miffed about why is this happening, where's this going, what's going to happen, you know, and I think the audience every night, which was kind of extraordinary, people would resolve it as a unit, the audience in very different ways, if one confident person started laughing early on, and it was a comedy. the whole thing was insane and uproarious. And then if they didn't, then there'd be this kind of desperate silence of of what is this thing?" and, and then it could maybe sit in some other space. But I mean the the, the 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 kind of a play without crisis is not the banner headline thing. it wasn't it was more uh, that was part of the fidelity to the transcribed dialogues, you know. Not that those don't exist, but that they are not part of what's um, unfurling here in, between these people. You know, it's not a situation. Because speaking of realism as something that one might presume to be generally sort of negative in some way, like people believe things or feel that things are real if they're slightly more miserable in some way. And we didn't want to do that. I think we wanted to sort of trace the kind of realism that was us, Uh, like most of life, is not that, is is something else. And even if that's sort of, quote-unquote, less interesting or something, there was a kind of attempt to maintain that throughout. And part of that was the direction of the actors to sort of quell their importing of drama and, like, looking to the rafters and sort of bringing thespian something to it to kind of elevate everything and, like, you know, bring it down. So there was a fidelity to that. But there were loads of gaps. Uh, um, I'm not answering your question, but, uh, but, you know.
0: Ed, I just wanted to um, uh, think back to some of your older films where you were using a sort of digital avatar. And I think you said at one point for for the purposes of of um, not having to film a real person mm. and, um, and that that allowed you to sort of, in a way do the kind of formal artistic things on this avatar that you might have ethical concerns, um, sort of treating a real person's image that way. And I'm interested in that sort of that ethical concern about treating someone's image versus the way in more recent work in, in this play that you might verbatim be transcribing conversations with friends. Mm. Um, and is there, like, qualitatively, what's the the difference in sort of um, the two materials, like someone's image and the uh, the conversation that would transpire between uh, two family members or, or two friends, yeah.
2: I mean, a big thing is is collaborating and obviously sort of more monolithic, insoluble things, for me, uh, are happily sort of not there necessarily. Also, it's a. I mean, it's, it's not, you know, part of that quandary for me was answered through computer generated stuff rather than actually having to film people it's just a it's a it's a very different thing i suppose i mean there's a, there's a kind of there's various sort of layers of artifice which afford certain kind of areas of remove maybe from a person doing something uh, <laughs> i mean it's it's it, i find it hard to because with CG one can, you know, of course, do anything at all and it's just, it has a plasticity that's sort of infinite in some way. Whereas a person, you know, Peter at the end say as the, as the, the sort of most violent aspect of this thing is someone miming, taking their face apart in the mirror. But it's not, there's no part of it that is horrible. I mean, there is in as much as it's sort of nodding towards visceral violence in some way but it's clearly pleasurable I mean clearly no one is making him do this although the script is of course doing that but <laughs> yeah I don't know I don't really have a I, I haven't thought about it like that to be honest sorry yeah do you have some ethical things to say
0: Oh
2: no no I'm no? <laughs> oh, sorry that's oh
1: I wanted to ask about the title how did you
2: come up with <laughs> where did that come
1: from <laughs>
0: Uh, Steve, why did we call that?
2: <laughs> well,
3: we would like to leave that very open, I think. Uh, not to give a coy answer. I, I, I'm not trying to be uh, arch or anything like that. But I think that when asked that question, we just try to say that we like the way that that title casts a certain light on the work. And hopefully we'll create a certain feeling or maybe... The audience will ask certain questions about that title, but I don't think that they're really answerable by the work
0: That's yeah
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. hey, um, now that you've um, written a play, how would you feel if someone else adapts it and directs it?
2: that'd be really good how would some, uh, <laughs> oh, I couldn't if someone else mounted the play oh yeah, that would be fantastic. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I just wondered if you could say a bit more about that like in terms of the different forms and like Oh, sorry, how you would... You know, like, you'd have even less control, I guess, about gaps and...
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Maybe they could make you watch them adapt it. That would be really mean. I don't know.
2: <laughs> I mean, there was... You know, a big thing was doing it in English in, in Denmark. It's not that often that, that there are plays mounted that are in English.
3: In fact, the theatre had never done one before. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And also,
2: all the actors, it's their second language. Or third. Yeah. Or fourth and so that was particularly difficult for them but also depends what you like but i you know that kind of those kinds of removal from some sort of nativeness add another mm. something i mean this is obviously not in the book but is in the film <laughs> and in on the stage although also not on the stage because there's a danish audience going to see this play in copenhagen in english so that, again it's another kind of peculiar contextually specific sort of thing but it would yeah. be amazing you know like the fantasies of people from different places putting this thing on, feeling the kind of... Uh, what what vernacular does to intimacy or presumption and all, of, you know, lots... Of, yeah, yeah.
1: I, I was wondering about um, this work, you know, called Sorcerer that has three different works within it yeah. and whether they were all occurring, coming into being at the same kind of time or thinking about how the different ways in which people would access them so the book traveling has a sort of democratic element to it and that it can go and meet people and the stage can only, you know, I Mm. can't go and see that. And, and whether, yeah, these are three strands that you would like people to kind of know as one work that is sorcerer or are they totally kind of separate entities?
3: I mean, I hope that they all have their own autonomy Mm. because probably the majority of people will only encounter one version of them, And, of course, it would be too much to expect an audience to uh, somehow encounter all three versions, or, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, and unrealistic. I mean, of course, if you get a chance to see the film or something like that, then that's fantastic. And hopefully that would add something to the, your reading of the book. But I think that we want each thing to stand alone. Mm. Each thing is its own object. And it is separate from the other objects. Of course, the play is just done, Right. I mean, at least this version of the play, Mm. the one that we filmed, we're never going to stage it again in that space with those actors because that's not how theater works. So that is inaccessible to everybody, including ourselves. But I think it's nice to encounter the film or to read the book and to also to imagine that there are other versions of this thing that are. Uh, integral, inextricable part of it, but that you don't have access to. And that is another kind of loss that we're playing with yeah. here. There's a, it's another kind of like missing piece that becomes part of the work in some way. You know, not as a game, not as a game against the viewer or something, but uh, as a component of it.
1: Hmm. Um, I was just wondering more about the experience of writing together, because I know you spoke about writing the italicized person that comes in but also writing these three characters together what was the rhythm of that like sort of juggling three people between two people how does the conversation between you two come in as well between these three characters
2: yeah oh steve (laughs) i think it was uh, a pleasure
3: yeah (laughs) it was one of the great pleasures of my writing life yeah in fact it was really fun uh (laughs) i think the whole thing is premised on our ability to collaborate uh, in some Which is way. very rare. Yeah. I think. Um, but to describe that process is a little bit tricky. I mean also because it was a very protracted process. I mean as Ed said because of the pandemic we had like two years to develop hmm. this play. So it happened over quite a long time and then of course there was the time of editing the film and there was the time of editing and preparing the manuscript. So uh, it's really difficult for me to kind of have a sense of what that collaboration was because it just,
2: it's... But it was definitely like, uh, it was the highlight of the week was the day that, you know, we sort of hang out and talk about these things. But it's also, you know, it's worth saying that centrally to this thing in lots of ways is friendship, you know, both in the, in the play itself but also in the creation of the thing. So there is a kind of sense that, um, it's, yeah, it's, it suffuses the whole Peace I think, and uh, but also that a lot of the things that we did in this did that we do in this thing are things we wanted to see based on a lot of very sh- close shared interests in very specific weird things, you yeah. know or like what we want to hear, what kind of music are we into, or what kind of uh, cinema you know uh, you know so a lot of it is kind of uh, meeting at that point of kind of mutual. Uh, desire and, and and admiring one another's work and stuff and so and then and then an opportunity really a kind of very lucky thing of someone inviting this to to take form and then really running with it and being like let's just keep going really if we can you know so and,
3: and I think that a shared um, I mean maybe the really rare thing is a shared. A sense of intuition or ability to kind of find an intuition together. Yes. So I think one of the things that was interesting to me about this collaborative process is that in a funny way, we didn't talk through a lot of decisions. We never stopped and explained <laughs> or justified why we wanted to do something. You know, somebody would have an idea and the other person would go, eh, or, oh, that's, that's interesting. And we would move from there. But we, we share a lot of common ground in terms of our interests and our tastes. But also I think that there was uh, beyond that common ground, which is just, you know, common cultural consumption, there was also an ability to just go there with each other and trust each other's intuition and also shoot it down when necessary, of course, because, you know, of course you have 20 bad ideas before one good one. Hmm. But again, it wasn't this kind of justificatory thing. We didn't say, I want to do this because it's really interesting because of these X, Y reasons. It was just like, what what if he pulls his face apart? Like, oh, okay.
1: Just uh, following up from that question, was there any conflict? Did you guys
2: fight while <laughs> Did
3: we fight? writing,
2: filming, the game. putting up the play? Is that a conflict? No. no. Not really. No. There was conflict with other people in the production of various bits. Mm. That's different. That's different.
3: Yeah. Let's not go <laughs> there. No, <laughs> no sir. No. <laughs> but, uh, but... <laughs> No, but there were moments of disagreement, of course. Yeah. Like, there was moments where one of us was, you know, stuck on an idea, and then the other one. And there was, <laughs> there was one big part of it that I wanted to take out, actually. Like, I really, really thought it wasn't working, and I was frustrated with it, and Ed insisted that we keep it in. And now it's my favorite part of it. <laughs> so uh, Ed was right.
2: But again, I don't think that that was... No uh, conflict. That's part of a a similar intuition, I think. Yeah,
3: that was like a panic attack. (laughs) (laughs) More more than like a conflict.
1: I might just ask like one last... Oh, please. Because I feel like um, we would be remiss if we didn't mention that at one point a printer cartridge levitates off the table and just stays there. There's a bed in front of the stage whose covers are moving the whole time. I was thinking about this idea of the word sorcerer not meaning anything but having a kind of patina or mm-hmm. a halo. Do you know what I mean? That, that these things hang off of yeah. words or spaces or movements or objects mm. and that there's something interesting about the ambiguity of what they're doing yeah. because they're doing something else. And I wonder yeah, if you'd like to say.
2: I think it's, it's a lot of things. You know, I think w- one of the things was making some theatre it was a kind of using the stage, using tropes, using tech that, or, or playing to the suspensions of disbelief that our convention within theatre. Oh yeah, we don't see the wire or whatever. You know, there's a bit of that, but but also a kind of really desire between this kind of. Um, mundanity or banality or something and this sort of miraculous. Yeah. But then the miraculous and the banal are neither, neither are seen necessarily or, or witnessed as such, you know, as kind of pointed out to be those things in some way. They're both sort of yeah. subsumed within the experience. I mean, there's also, I think the, the Levitation printer cartridge does sort of introduce a shift in something. You know, mm. there is a kind of aloneness to witnessing that and the fact that he doesn't remark upon it. Mm. Yeah. That, that kind of signifies a kind of, oh, okay, you know, like we're in his, we're not in his head, but we're, we're sort of not quite yeah. here anymore. Or we're with him or something, <laughs> you know. But there, there was definitely a, yeah, a I mean, we the best day, maybe uh, one of our usually yeah. best days of working existence was to... This day in the theatre, where this they hired a magician consultant to come in and talk about levitation.
3: <laughs> yeah, to teach us how to levitate something. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, you know, he didn't actually give us the answer we needed, but he gave us a great history no. of like things. And it was like maybe electromagnets, you know, maybe like this, we like this huge. In the table, will embed these electromagnets. It was strange thing. It was really great, you know, yeah. but also a pinch yourself kind of. What are we doing? You know, that's, that's great. Yeah, it was fantastic. So we're really insistent that this printer cartridge has to levitate. <laughs> but a bit like the radiators, right? There is this kind of, um, in a way, this excessive move towards an insistence on something that no one else necessarily needs mm. or should know why. But it's a kind of like, okay, right, this is the ground. We're making the ground <laughs> mm. that is a kind of insistence. And we knew from the beginning that
3: we wanted gadgets, Yeah. right? Like we wanted elements of magic on the stage and that yeah. we wanted those to be kind of like very analog, practical, yes. mm-hmm. gadgety magic. And so like levitation is kind of an obvious like theatrical trick, yeah. although it turned out to be much more difficult than we
2: <laughs> thought. Particularly but, uh, to get it to stay there. You to can get, have something come up yeah. and come down, but to yeah. so, like just stop there?
3: Yeah, the printer cartridge at, at like, you know, three quarters of the way through the play raises off the table and levitates there and just stays there for the rest of the time. But all the play. instructions
2: are in the book if you want to do that yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now you can know how to. Similarly, the the sort of undulating, writhing mm-hmm. bed. Um, again, we had this uh, almost a day with the stage manager talking about maybe we should have rats in there that are just, <laughs> or like yeah. this guy, the stage, the the craftsman man. I don't know. Was like my kids free? I think most evenings. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get them in there. under the covers. Yeah. It's really, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in the end, it's a really simple answer, but one that has this kind of uh, really analog, like uh, Heath Robinson-esque kind of you know cranked thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was re- it was a real joy. This sort of noise of um, sort of sparkle of really mechanical magic, you know. Yeah. Analog stuff felt very theatrical, but also very attuned to the mood of the, the whole situation. I think. Mm. You know. Yeah.
3: And now we're showing the bed as a standalone sculpture. Oh, yeah, man. And I think yep. it's really, it's like a wonderful thing on its own, too, because it feels like it's like it would be a prop in kind of like a regional haunted house. or Something <laughs> like that, right? It's just yeah. like very beautiful, very mechanical thing. You can almost see how it works, but it also it does, is magic. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible looking. It, it looks really strange and good and uncanny
2: and, uh, yeah. Okay. I that's a good place
1: to... Oh. I was
0: no, actually going to ask, are you showing
2: the bed Ah, in New York, in in uh, Gladstone Gallery, yeah. So you know, rush over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's really easy to make them. It really—it's like, all in the book. Yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. diagram.
1: In there's a diagram. Make yeah, make the your book own is for sale. Bus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can get a signed copy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for your questions. Um, it's, yeah, it's great to hear so much like curiosity and enthusiasm. And, uh, thank you, Ed, Steve and Emily. Thank you. Uh, thank our guests. Come and buy some books. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.